Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome back. Uh, This is Leanne Nguyen speaking to you all from um, New York, from Brooklyn, New York. I'm very glad to be back in conversation with you and particularly glad to be in conversation with uh, someone that I know, I have known throughout the years and um, is very gracious to agree to join me. Uh, last week, I talked about what it is like to live with trauma, what it's like to have been wounded and to live with the fissure, with the crack that results from that blow. I talked to you about how when uh, you experience a traumatic blow, you know, be it a loss or a violation, you are cracked open. And the question, the struggle in the aftermath of survival is about how you inhabit that crack. The singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen said a while back, there is a crack in everything. That is how light enters. He's recognizing in this statement the fact of the human condition, which is that uh, we all have cracks in us, that living rubs you up against hard blows, hard edges, that growth requires pain, that every one of us has endured blows to her being, and the cracks, the wounds, the fissures that we carry within us show where we have been, how we have been wounded, and how we have let the light in. To stay alive, to remain human, to continue to stand and to grow. But, you know, um, Leonard Cohen was preceded uh, by the poet Rumi by about seven centuries. Rumi said, and I quoted him last week, I want to quote him again because it's so lovely, this quote, The wound is where the light enters. When life wounds you, when you are cracked open, you know, by the unpredictability of human existence, by the cruelty of people, by violent loss, by some unbearable and premature knowledge of your mortality, you're wounded, mortally wounded and traumatized. But Rumi said that that is precisely how the light enters. That is how you learn, transform, and grow. Letting the light enter through your wound is how you survive. Actually, more than survive. It's how you go on with being human, as opposed to just surviving and existing as an animal. Going forward with this radio show, I want to explore with you how we let the light enter. We now live in a traumatized world. Just read the newspapers, any newspaper, you know what I mean. But we also live in a world that is constantly traumatizing us with its bottom line cruelty of making money, denying death, of withholding kindness and tenderness, of treating people like commodities, of punishing the weak, the wounded, 
the different among us. We now live in a world that ignores, derides, or even vilifies the cracks and wounds that its citizens endure. The temptation to shut out the light, to give in to ugliness and cruelty and incivility is great. It's so encouraged by the culture of capitalism and technocracy and nationalism. And so I feel that whenever we can uh, to tend to our cracks, to let the light enter instead of the shit of hate and fear and greed, we should. You know, so many of you gave me the feedback last week uh, about the talk on trauma, and I was so touched by your generosity. It, it takes a lot of openness and kindness to tell another person of your experience, uh, to tell another person of how she has affected you. So I thank you for that. Um, and it means a lot to me to be told that what I said about trauma resonated and helped put into words or helped you understand something, someone significant in your life. Because you know what I said last week was not an academic intellectual exercise. Everything that I shared with you in those observations, someone, human beings, had lived through that. What I share with you, I knew from being with real life, not by reading books. And everything that I learned actually cost me something. So, because, you know, when you work with trauma, you either have been wounded or you expose yourself to wounding. And I have fought to let the light enter after what I have seen and heard in my contact with people. And so talking to you on this show is another way that I have, that I have sought out to let the light enter. So please, let's continue to talk, to share. Call me with your insights and questions or write to me. Now today, as I said, I'm going to be joined in conversation by Julian. That is not a name that he was given by his parents upon birth in Argentina. That is the name that I knew him by when we met about 15, 16 years ago. That is the name that he chose for himself as a grown man to mark the distance from the wounded, helpless child of his past. I met um, Julian when I was working in a treatment program for survivors of torture and trauma, and he came uh, a couple of years after his arrival in this country. And then we proceeded to work together for a total of about five, six years. And um, when we stopped, uh, Julian was kind enough to, and very generous to remain in touch with me, sending me updates about his life. And, um, you know, for a therapist, it, it's such a gift to know about the after-therapy life of someone um, that you would see every week, sometimes several times a week for many years. And Julian gave me that gift of letting me know what he or who he had become. He's now a writer, an art curator, and a painter, among many other things. And actually, just this past weekend, he conducted workshops on how to work with trauma and your dark side. Now, the man that he is now is a much different, tremendously different, from the person that I met years ago, the person who came to New York City with uh, barely with a word of English and with $100 uh, in his pocket. When I knew Julian back then, he described himself to me as not real, not human. 
he tried to be superhuman. He often um, likened himself to a phoenix, uh, that magical bird capable of rising up from the death, uh, from death and from fire again and again. Um, Julian, I never told you this, but I thought of you actually at times more as um, the Greek uh, god uh, Prometheus, uh, punished by the gods um, by being chained to a rock, and the rock was was trauma, um, and having your liver eaten at the end of every day, and then regrowing it every night, and starting every day and every night in, in, in such a fashion. I saw in you in Julian, a man engaged in perpetual self-destructiveness. You know, that thing of letting your liver be eaten every day by drug use, sexual compulsions, self-hate and depression and isolation. But I also saw you trying to fight your way back from complete or near-complete destruction. I saw you try to walk back to life, even though most of what you knew about life you learned from being beaten, raped, and persecuted, and exploited, and then exiled. I was working with a man who had a laser-sharp mind and so many talents, but whose mind would repeatedly betray him by going blank, by assailing him with terrible thoughts, or transporting him to a whole other reality. And a man with so many gifts to create beauty and yet lived in in chaos and sometimes squalor. Uh, You know, to those of you who are listening, and and if you had a chance to visit New York City and came to Tavern on the Green um, before it closed uh, in in its former life, and if you enjoyed the beautiful decor and flower arrangements in the restaurant, that was Julian's doing. And yet, in his in his personal life, there was chaos, as I said, and 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 danger, and squalor. Um, he would start beautiful projects, create amazing opportunities for himself, and then gave it away or abandoned it. Just would not allow each creation to flourish into something that he could build on, something that that he could make money off to pay rent, for God's sake, to make a name for himself or to build connections with people. Uh, you know, a few years into our work, and it was back-breaking, hard work, Julian realized, he shared with me, that his mind had been put to use to survive all the attacks and abuse, but uh, it was not practiced in the daily normal business of living, such as, you know, tuning in to one's needs, attending to, to reality, to things such as money, managing money in health and making sure that you are safe um, or connecting, you know, the facts, the memories, the thoughts, the feelings into a coherent story, into a, a coherent, stable self that, that you can look at and say, this is me, you know, this is myself. That man that I, I worked with uh, lived in a fragmented reality, constantly at the edge of, of, of chaos and destruction. <clears throat> Julian couldn't be alone with himself. He didn't know how to get out of bed on most days or be with people and didn't know how to sit um, with feelings uh, or even know what he was feeling. Um, you know, I was working with a man who was so articulate and generous and loving and, and, and full of life and passions, and yet every week was a near-death experience. Um, most weeks I didn't know if I would see him again alive. 
And I myself was living on that edge um, of, of, of not knowing. Um, I, I saw Julian uh, struggle also so much with, uh, with his feelings. You know, feelings to him were like tidal waves that, that, that he didn't know how to swim with or ride on. Um, the feelings were equated with drowning, with being transported to some place unknown and uncontrollable. They were not precious messengers of that deeper, true part of you, but were like monsters that threatened to devour you, like mystifying, frightening things that threatened to destroy you. I remember distinctly one thing that Julian said to me in one of our sessions, you know, I would do anything not to feel. If I feel, I would die. By the way, this is one of the things that um, that I was talking about in the last episode, how in... In traumatized people, um, feeling, being alive to oneself, uh, to what contact with people can bring is so frightening, so frightening and so painful that you numb yourself, you know, that you deaden yourself to your emotions. And this is one of the invisible but so, so insidious injuries of trauma. You know, you cut off someone's arm, you punch out his eye socket, and and his body adjusts to the injury, and the injury is visible to people. You burn down his house, and he can rebuild and resettle somewhere. The loss can be compensated or made up for, but this, this amputation of the part of yourself, of, of the part of yourself that welcomes feelings that lives your desires and your emotions that is tuned in to your needs. It's something of, of abuse um, and psychological trauma that to me is so hateful, so heinous. Um, and so I saw Julian live with that injury. He would act out whenever he would feel something. He would numb himself with drugs and sex. He would run around putting himself in jeopardy and drive himself to exhaustion with work that he would not be paid for or even asked to be paid for. Um, What I saw when I met Julian 15 years ago was the aftermath of the abuse of a boy whose sensitivity got smashed, whose body was violated and corrupted, and whose mind had been broken by unspeakable, incomprehensible experiences with people. I met a boy who loved art, who was loved by his grandmother and art teacher, who was in love with beautiful things, books, paintings, music, but then ended up being terrified of intimate connections and kept inviting violence and exploitation. I saw a lovely and loving man who nevertheless was incapable of forming loving, intimate relationships that would last or that would be mutually uh, nurturing. When we worked together, I met a man intent on killing himself, or at least he was living as if his life, his body didn't matter. He was living as if he had already died and didn't care. But I saw him also struggle to stay sane to make use of his mind and engaged in a gigantic effort to welcome back the longing for love and the desire to live his potential and to learn about love. And I was in awe uh, of that effort and I very much admired uh, the fight. Um, Actually, uh, you know, I realize now, this is very, very annoying, frustrating, the constraints of time. Let me just stop here and heed the call of, uh, of the network for a commercial break. 
and I will be back to um, to introduce um, to talk about my history with Julian and introduce him in person. All right, we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. So, I was, um, during the break, I was reminiscing about when Julie and I first met, and I thought, you know, this is one of the amazing, great things about being in the U.S., or at least maybe New York City, uh, back to 15, 16 years ago, here we were, you know, this gay Argentinian a man um, working at Tavern the Green as a sort of florist, and um, here was this Vietnamese uh, woman practicing psychoanalysis, uh, meeting and trying to uh, figure out how to do this business of, of living. And I was, I was saying before the break that I was really in awe uh, of what Julian was trying to do for himself, and I, I was admiring the fight, uh, the way that he was trying to fight back into life. And I, I was mystified by that commitment, actually, and I did ask Julian at some point, and he gave me the joke. He said, you know, are you kidding? I'm from Argentina. We all go to psychoanalysis over there instead of going to the gym. Um, Actually, I thought that he was not being just Argentinian. He was being human, you know, fighting back. 
uh, to your mind, uh, fighting to learn to love uh, and, and to learn uh, to let people uh, love you, to learn to be alive as a human being and not just someone who's physically alive and safe. Um, that, to me, is being human. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit, hopefully I can go quickly to, to get Julian in, uh, about the history, uh, the, the background, and I'm giving you the bare-bone um, outline of, of his life before America with his permission. So quickly, uh, born in Argentina, uh, to, to parents who were not very uh, well educated, and uh, his father worked as a rancher, for example, in the countryside, and Julian was a very... Uh, sensitive and soft and and, and smart uh, boy and um, with a very machismo uh, father uh, who then would berate him and try to train him into being a real man and this is a very common story of um, of gay boys and he would be repeatedly beaten up and uh, physically abused by his parents um, and certainly his talents and sensitivity were not very much appreciated uh, Julian was close during his childhood uh, to one uh, one person only, a cousin who was six, seven years older, who then, when he was in uh, in about elementary school or middle school, uh, raped him and did so repeatedly for many years to come. And this is also, I have heard this story so often among uh, men who... Uh, grew up in homophobic uh, countries or families. You know, the neglect would uh, leave you so vulnerable to sexual predators. Um, so that was the early, mid-childhood uh, interspersed with uh, a, a very difficult, abusive relationship with his parents. As a teenager, Julian would run away, uh, finally, and... Um, fell in and found a religious Catholic community. And I think that period of of, uh, of your life was quite good. Uh, throughout those six or seven years that he was with the church in that community, he was um, obviously completely closeted, terrified of being found out and expelled. And found your way back to the city, uh, if I remember well. And uh, when you were in your 20s, I think, uh, met a man, a police officer that you had some kind of an affair with, um, and then who proceeded to, uh, I think nowadays we would call it sexual slavery, uh, he would proceed to get all of your papers and kidnap you, essentially, and, uh, and, and prostitute you to influential uh, uh, authority figures in, um, in Buenos Aires or in the city that you were living in. And that went on for years and years um, uh, until I think you heard some news uh, that one of the powerful figures that you were being prostituted to was being concerned about um, being blackmailed of his connection to you and was going to go after you and eliminate you. So that's uh, how you decided to um, leave Argentina and purchased uh, a one-way uh, ticket to New York City, which was the shortest and cheapest flight that you could find. So that was the background for how Julian came uh, to the U.S. And I, I met him about four, three, four years after he arrived in New York. Um, he was in the process of applying for asylum, uh, which is a very arduous uh, and, and 
quite ruthless uh, legal immigration process, you know, where you have to make a case for fearing for your life and asking the U.S. government to provide uh, protection. It was the stress that, that brought him into the program where I was working. And the psychiatrist noted at the time, you know, deep depression and severe panic attacks and, and isolation. And there was a lot of chaos um, in, in his mind as well and in his daily functioning. Um, very impulsive man at the time, and he would alternate between having no motivation and having great, tremendous high hopes and feeling numb and so depressed and lethargic to being very high energy and a lot of compulsive um, acting out uh, through drug use and sex and so on. And so for these reasons, uh, Julian was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and put on medications. And here, by the way, you see the stupidity of psychiatry, of, of the mental health field, because when you only look at the overt symptoms, uh, when you don't grasp the deep existential turmoil at the center or underneath of, of the, the symptoms, um, when you only try to bring the person to normal, you don't hear the deep question that is being asked in the suffering. Because underneath the dramas and the chaos uh, was emptiness and terror. And at the core of emptiness uh, was grief. You know, the emptiness of the abandoned child, of, of the homeless, of the one who does not remember or know what it's like to love or be loved. The terror of the abused child, the closeted, persecuted gay man, of the illegal immigrant who had no money, no family, no protection. Julian wanted tenderness and connection. He needed kindness and protection. And yet he was terrified of being dependent on another human being, of being soft and vulnerable, of feeling. Because when your body has been repeatedly used and violated, you turn it into a thing. When your mind has gone to unimaginable places, you learn to ignore what it knows. And you learn to expel such unbearable knowledge, such unanswerable questions through dramatic encounters with people. Encounters where you invite violence and exploitation in order to confirm what you know, what you think about yourself. So at the core of the thing that, that was diagnosed as bipolar um, is the question about how to live in the aftermath of trauma, of abuse. I saw Julian ask questions such as, Will I survive? And he asked all of these questions through all the crazy, chaotic ways of living at the time. Will I survive this mess? Can this person, whoever, this person that I meet in the street, in the sex club, uh, you know, on, uh, in the middle of the night, can this person destroy me again? What of me remains that can be destroyed? What of me, of my mind, my body, my life remains that should be could be salvaged and protected and tended to? And how do I sit with the emptiness, the aloneness, and the grief about what life has brought me? Where can I go next? How do I get to normal when I have never known normal? So he would ask these questions by repeatedly putting himself in harm's way or engaging in relationships where he would be exploited or rejected. Um, and actually, you know, one confirmation for, your, um, for what you thought you knew about yourself came with the diagnosis of HIV about a couple of years into our treatment. 
and that one almost uh, brought us to a crash, but you survived it. Um, but in my view, the thing that you struggled to survive was, was life itself, was your life. At the middle of the up and down of the bipolar thing was fear and longing and hurt and grief. Um, we normal people can stay with these emotions you know, and sail it. But Julian only knew how to fly above it into fantastical denials of superhuman projects or he would crash under and be pulled into despair and helplessness. But he hung in there for years with me and fought for ways to stay in the middle of life with the core question of how do I go on? How do I become human? He fought hard to become human, to be with the rest of us. Um, so we tried to do all of that for about five, six years. And at the end of that, Julian said that it was time to leave. And he compared himself, and I love this metaphor. It was so helpful to me. He compared himself to a broken vase. You know, the shattered pieces had been put back together. The vase is not the same as what it was meant to be um, or what... Um, it can be, but it held. And there was some piece missing, Julian told me, and he had to go to figure it out for himself. He had to take the vase home and make it his and look at it for himself and take ownership of it. So we said goodbye. Uh, when we said goodbye, I, 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 I saw that he had reached some measure of normalcy because he was struggling with love, <laughs> with the insecurities and jealousies and ecstasies of being in love or falling out of love. Um, and so throughout the years, I got updates. Uh, Julian continued to do the work on his own, got back into art, started painting again and writing. He reconnected with his parents, came out to friends and family in Argentina, finally very recently with his uh, sexuality, and uh, came to terms and did some deep work about his childhood, uh, his sexual abuse. And the last time that we talked, uh, Julian said to me, I am human now. And I, that was just the most, the most wonderful thing and, and missed mysterious thing for me to hear and uh, I thought I would like very much to find out about that um, that process by which Julian turned himself uh, back into being human okay um, well let me just turn to Julian now um, if he's still there after <laughs> if he's still on a beer after hearing me, you know, babble on. Uh, it must be very strange to uh, to hear someone talk about um, about your journey in in such a in such a way. Uh, do you have any reactions? <laughs> you have anything to add before we go on? Can you? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. We can all. Ah, perfect. Yes. Um, yeah, it is strange and um, and it's very accurate. That you know, and it's uh, emotional, and uh, and at the same time, it's like very illuminating in in many aspects. Because um, hearing you talk about trauma last week, and then you know, I say, oh, now I know what is going on, and then um, and I didn't know what was going on, and but you know, I only knew what I didn't want 
uh, I didn't know what what life was. That that was the mm-hmm. most amazing thing that I think uh, for me was going to therapy was to realize that I was that I, what, what I was living was in life. It was mm. very hard to understand, and and but it was at the at the same time it was the most horrible thing and hardest thing to understand that what. What I was living wasn't real, the real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I felt, you know, how this could be possible. Um, but at the same time, knowing that I, I, some part of me inside myself say, I have to figure out what life is. And I start this process of start paying attention to other people and comparing myself to their feelings. I saw that they, how they responded to things and how I responded to things. I saw how, why they smile at, or why, you know, they're happy about, and, you know, and I start realizing these, these things about myself, that I didn't have emotions, or I realized, I remember very clearly about, I met my friend Stephen Watson, and I saw how much attention he paid when I was talking. And then I saw myself so Mm self-absorbed and that I was listening to hear, but I wasn't doing it the same way that he was doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I realized that, oh, I am so self-absorbed. And it hurt me a lot to realize that I was self-absorbed. And mm-hmm. I guess, like, you know, I couldn't, I didn't know what to do then because I kind of, like, ran away from my feelings uh, and ran away from him, I guess, because I couldn't, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> but, you know, this, so, this thing, you, you said, you said one friend, thing. You know? You said one thing that, that is very common, you know, knowing the, the distinction between life as you knew it, your life, and the other life, the life that the rest of the people, you know, know about and, and, and were going about doing. And, and that, that sense of separation, you know, is so poignant and very common. What, what really interests me was where did you get the sense that there was another way and that you wanted to figure that out? You know, that had not been that curiosity and that ambition had not been snuffed out of you. Um, and I said last week, you know, that curiosity is inherent, you know, it's inborn. We're born with that until something terrible happens that robs us of that. And, and throughout our relationship, you know, I, I took note of this sense of, of you wanting to, even though you kept shitting on yourself <laughs> in your life, wanting to figure it out. So do you know? Do you know where that came from or how you held on to it? Because it would be so easy, you know, to let go, to give up. I don't know. I, I, I don't have explanation. I always had this curiosity. And, but I had something that didn't go away was this, the sense of, um, oh, goodness on myself. I knew that I was a good um, person. And other people knew too. And maybe on some level, it did stick. Yeah. The things that your friends and the people who loved you and told you about it, even though you didn't want to hear it, it did get in. 
I, you know, I had this sense of wanting to be good, which I was pointed out with a recent friend of mine. He said, you know, you try so hard to be good, and it only shows that you don't feel worthy. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I, I saw that a whole building crashed on top of my, my head. And I said, oh, my God. I didn't know that. And it was mm-hmm. true, you know. But it was, but I, and I remember that I sat down and said, yes, but that saved me. He said, yes, but you're already good. You don't have to try anymore. <laughs> you already <laughs> are good. You know, mm-hmm. but you don't don't keep trying so hard. You know, I know that you're doing it because you're trying to be nice and good for me. But you, I don't need it. So mm-hmm. I didn't ask for it. You, you yeah. just like you're just doing it because it's, it's something that you do. And and it was so difficult for me to hear. And I was I was shaking, but I realized that he said the truth. And and I didn't know how to process it in the moment. But after that, I tried to start looking for to say why I have to show and demonstrate that I was good. I know that I'm good, but what, what it is, why I'm exaggerating it mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in yeah. a way. But, you know, and I recognize that. I realized that that saved my life because, mm-hmm. you know, I was trying to find, you know, the good, not only myself, but in others. And, and then, you know, it worked out. It worked out for me, at least. I don't know for everybody, but it worked out for me. And Julian? I think that that was the curiosity come from, that desire to be good or to find good and to see, you know, uh, uh, you know. The, one of my favorite phrases from absolutely every book that I read is in the Bible, that they say, you know, and God, after God created the universe, he said, and God saw that, that he was good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Let's and take and a I, break. I can refuse Julian? to think that something is bad. Yes. Yeah. Let's take a break right now and we'll come back to talk about goodness. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. 
In fitness and health, we all deserve a second chance. Join host Michael Skog for the program, You Only Stronger. You always have the ability to start fresh, even if you slip up on your diet or fitness program. Even small steps taken throughout the day can help. Each show will conclude with weekly assignments that you can use and will want to hear your feedback. You Only Stronger airs live Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. We are back. This is Leanne Yuen uh, here with Julian. Right before we broke for commercial, uh, we were talking about goodness, uh, about knowing. Julian said that knowing that he some, somehow, somewhere in there, that he was a good person, but uh, not knowing how to, how to come to terms with that, something along that line. And it made me think, you know, again, one of the things about, about abuse, about being traumatized, is that you are robbed of that essence, you know, of that knowledge um, about yourself as a good, intact human being. And the process of recovery is, is about believing that again. Um, and it made me think, Julian, looking back to all those years, do you think you can say on, on all the horrible you know, things that you went through, what was the deepest injury to you, would you say? What was the thing that, that you had to, uh, to struggle with the most? Um, I think it was the sense of being abandoned or it's the silence, I think. You know, it, it was the band. I feel that I was muffled, that I was, I couldn't say it. I couldn't tell what was going on. I think that... Because, that because nobody thing. would hear it or because you yourself didn't have the words, the language for it? When I was a little kid, I didn't have the words for it. I remember that I didn't know how to say... I didn't know what happened, actually. You know, you know mm-hmm. like I was raped, I think, between I was eight and nine. And the first... I didn't know what it was. I remember that we had a sexual education class when I was 12 in elementary school. And when I realized what happened, because by the class, I kind of saw that, you know, that wasn't something that it was in the class. So I was kind of smart. And I commented to my best friend, he ran out screaming, you know, you're gay, mm-hmm. you're gay. And, you know, and while... My comment to him wasn't describing a trauma. I realized that it was bad because his reaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then okay. I knew that yeah. something bad happened. And I felt the shame right there. So I didn't feel anything before. And I didn't feel the hurt before because uh, that was, you know, when I, came, I questioned all myself. I discovered later on in my life why I didn't feel absolutely nothing. Why my body couldn't feel it. 
and and then I realized that my body didn't feel absolutely anything. But uh, you know, but I think it was the silence that the shame gave me. I yeah. wasn't able to say it. And then that silence lived on and became something, right? Something else in how you related to people and 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 how you would uh, live out your life. And I was one of the things that I I was talking about in in in, in, in this silence is you tell you do tell your story in other ways. You do try to speak of of what you experienced of what you knew. Mm-hmm. In other ways, in non-verbal ways, sometimes in sexual ways, and some people would just expl- express it in music, in art. Um, how did you? What what became of the silence? For you, well, the silence after many years, it became. You know, I realized that I was a shy kid and I didn't have friends. So I made a huge effort when I was a teenager, between I was 13 and, and 16, to talk and to learn how other people talk and have friends and everything. And I developed this personality, this, the personality that most people see now, which is I'm very friendly and I have hundreds of friends. But, <clears throat> so, but it was another way to silence because... I I covered it up with words, and I could I could have told, and I remember telling my story many times, and I didn't feel anything. So what what I created was this person didn't feel absolutely nothing. I don't know how it happened, but mm-hmm. you know I didn't have feelings. I didn't know that I didn't have feelings, but I also I did I realized later on, actually two years ago, thanks to my friend who's a doctor. For the first time, I realized what hunger was, and I remember I woke up and I told him, "I have, I feel this and this and that." And he said, "Did you drink water?" "Yes," but I still feel it. I say, "He said that's that you're hungry." When he said it, I don't know. It was like I saw the light. Mm-hmm. I realized mm-hmm. that my body. I had never, you know. I remember that all my entire life. I had to tell myself I had to eat something. I could go on without drinking or eating anything for, <clears throat> or eating, eating constantly without feeling that I was, you know, eating myself, eating. So I didn't have the feeling of when I was eating or not. So I had to think mm-hmm. about it. Right. Um, right. And when I that discovered that, I say, oh, wow. And I did the same with the feelings. I didn't have feelings. You know, I, right. I had received price and, you know, and you saw, you know, I was the cover in New York Times and. I didn't feel absolutely nothing. While someone will be happy or feel proud, I didn't feel absolutely nothing. I never yeah. felt anything. I, I had to tell our, our listeners about the New York Times cover. It was uh, a few years ago when the Pope was visiting New York City, right? And um, supreme irony, you know. The Pope, yes. yes, closeted gay man from Argentina was. Um, Asked to put flowers in the Pope's bedroom or something. <laughs> so life is wonderful in that way. Uh, this thing about discovering that you were hungry, you, you know, and and then you went on to discover that you felt other things, right? Such as being afraid, such as wanting, uh, wanting love, uh, or, or being 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 in grief about quote what you said to me. You know how fucked up my life. Uh, 
has been and how impossible it is to rebuild it. Um, so what, does it cost you anything to feel again? Or is it um, all nice and good? <laughs> well, you know, um, I am a man of extremes. <laughs> so I uh-huh. always feel. So from not feeling absolutely nothing and going to therapy and, you know, being so afraid of feeling, um, little by little, I start experiencing, well, by observation, I start showing people, you know, my friends, my, you know, my business partners, how they went on with their life, you know, they get divorced, they get separated, they, they you know, they had breakups, they rebuild their life, and they were okay. So I was thinking, hmm, maybe I can do the same. So, you so know, in this was, doing, coming back it, to be human. You know, that, that thing, I stopped being this thing, you know. Uh, it was like I, I, I decided that, okay, it looks like being human is to have feelings. So I, I decided to try on to start feeling. Uh-huh. It wasn't and easy, though, but, you know. Well, what, what's it like now to be human? <laughs> <laughs> well, it is less traumatizing <laughs> than, than to be a survivor or a victim and, uh, and stay there. And, you know, it's the realization that I was always a victim and I was always in survival mode that it crossed these, these extreme emotions that will completely exhaust me. So now when I'm tired, I'll just go take a nap and I'm fine, perfect after, you know. And mm-hmm. before, you know, it was either depression or excitement, you know, I was like one end or the other end, and, you know, and I guess, like, you know, I, I'm always so grateful of my friends and everybody who was around me, so, who saw that, and they had to live with me in that period, you know, it's like completely, uh, you know, whacked out, you know. And but now, what do you, you know, gain, like, Julian, what, what would you say you have gained or are able to, to, to have or to do with life now? Balance, <laughs> balance and acceptance. You know, I, you know, uh, yeah. Now, acceptance of what? Acceptance of it is what it is. You know, I'm mm. not gonna cover the hand. You know, I'm not gonna erase my history or what I, what happened to me or what I did to mm-hmm. myself by building this super personality persona, you know, that's there. Mm-hmm. It's, it didn't go anywhere. It's inside me. What I had to do is go and, and see it and see why, what happened, you know, who's responsible for and fix it, you know, or, or feel different about it. You know, that's why basically I, I, I created the series called Going to, Into the Dark Side because it was based on me. <laughs> I'm talking about, mm-hmm. you know, I did it for me. I did it say, well, okay, uh, sorry, I, I don't want to lose thread of, of the acceptance. No. You said that it's one of the, the gains of, of being human again. What does this acceptance allow you to do with, for yourself, with yourself? Acceptance gave me the sense that I am valuable. I didn't realize that I didn't feel really any value. I didn't feel worthy of anyone's attention. I, I, you know, 
I didn't feel it. You know, no, I, I know that my parents didn't mean to, you know, make me feel anything, whatever, you know, like unvalued, uh, unworthy. They love me very much. And mm-hmm. I see that they love me. But for some reason, because maybe because of the, the trauma, because the, how I saw my life or what I had experienced, I completely lost sense that anyone and myself, I didn't have this sense of value. So accepting finally who I am and what happened and no, it's not accepting in the sense that like, oh, you know, I forgive everything. No, no, no. It's just, it's accepting that, that that's who is me, that is part of me. And I guess like I spent my whole life trying to push that away, trying to be pure and, you know, and, and without, mm-hmm. you know, any error or mistake or anything. But, you know, going and say, well, this is who's me, this is who I am, and this is what I do. And that, that acceptance gave me, the, I guess, like, more power and more value. Yes. I think that, yes. you know, uh-huh. that's, that's and, how and it And that works. gives you a, a genuine, true sense of, of control, of agency, not the false control of denial, you know, of running away and, and, and of, 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 of pushing things away, but the control of doing with what you have, with who you are. Yes, because I, I realized that many of the things yeah. that I, I was doing is trying to show my power through rejection. Yeah. So, you know, oh, you know, I'm powerful um, because I reject you, because I, you know, I despise you, but no, because I really, you know, I, I didn't have any yep. power. Well, so um, time, 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 the tyranny of time. <laughs> we are coming to the end of the hour now, and um, Julian, we should meet again. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, I, I want to do, I have reserved the next hour, uh, next week, for us to continue the conversation, to go more into depth of this, uh, of this, of Julian's journey, but also um, for Julian to give a chance to also ask me questions uh, to make it a true dialogue. And I very much invite people who are listening who would have questions, observations um, about this topic to call in. All right. So um, goodbye for now, and I hope to find you all again uh, next week. We're going to go live on Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. If you have questions, that's the time to call in. Okay, bye-bye for now. Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.